I'm Hera. And I'm Aisha. And we are the Mocha Single Mothers by Choice, or SMCs. Like you, as SMCs, we decided to become mothers knowing we'd be the sole care provider and parent of our children, at least at the outset. And the Mocha is for Black. We discuss being SMCs from an intentionally Black lens. You'll connect with all the interesting and fun things about this non-traditional path. Like how you decide which sperm to use, the cold, hard truth of fertility, your reality of dating as a single mother who doesn't have a co-parent to rely on for occasional childcare, and what it's actually like to parent as an SMC. This is the Mocha Single Mothers by Choice podcast. Welcome to our Ask Me Anything episode. So this is our last episode of the season. Yay! Season one. Yay! So over the season, we've gotten some really good questions from our listeners, and we wanted to address some of them today. So we had a load of questions. Thanks, everyone, for sending them in. And we had some really great questions around known donors and also adoption and donor eggs. We want to make sure that we cover these topics really well. And so we encourage everyone to go back to the known donor episode, the two-part series on adoption. And then also with donor eggs, we are hoping to address that in more detail during season two. So let's get into these questions. So Hera, how did you go about telling your family your plans to become an SMC? So this was interesting. I actually decided to become an SMC shortly after my son died. So I was really worried at first that people would just assume that this was like a crazy like grief decision. And even though I was still grieving, I can confidently say that this was something that I had been thinking about long before. And it took me a while to actually share it with my family. So to them, it seemed like this was like, oh, I'm just going to go have a baby. Uh, when in my head, I had actually been thinking about it for a long time. And so not only did I have to contend with that, I also am from a very traditional Christian family. And even though you know my immediate family is not necessarily heavily practicing, just culturally religious, and so I think initially people didn't really understand. And so there were lots of questions and I think I would encourage people to just really sit with it for a while before you start sharing, because I think sometimes people will, people will not necessarily have a conversation with you. They'll almost like try to challenge you. And by the time you tell your friends and family, you want to be confident and you want to sort of have thought about it and researched it on your own, because ultimately this is something that you're deciding for your personal family, and it doesn't have to be a collective decision, right? And so I really like the fact that I sat with this for a while. And by the time I shared it with my people, I was like, this is what I'm doing. It wasn't like this, should I do this? Or what do you think? It was more, this is what I'm doing. Y'all are just going to have to get in line. Uh, and and I thought, I, I think I was somewhat surprised by some of the family members because I think they did have questions, but I think for the most part, they eventually kind of like were supportive and fell in line. And I think it was probably because I wasn't asking them, I was telling them. I'd say uh, my experience was a bit similar to Harris. So context for my life. So my parents are deceased and I grew up with a slightly religious Christian foster mom who was in her 60s and I'm a rules girl. So when I made the decision to become an SNC, it was a big step for me because I come from divorce where I was doing it almost the right way in a partnership, almost the right way that I was trained to believe was the right way in a partnership, two parent household that was 
the reality and it was right within my fingertips. And when I got divorced, all of that got shattered. So when I decided to become an SMC, it was a journey that I had to go through. So I didn't arrive at it lightly. Now, I mentioned the the parental part because I had to only tell my siblings. And so there is not a mama, may I, you know, type of dynamic there. There is a, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. Thank you for listening. And that was pretty much how I approached it. Now I got the typical, you know, could you do this? Could you do that? Maybe you shouldn't have kids. And, and that's okay. And I really like what Hera said is once you make your decision, sit with it for a while, because it's your decision. You would, you could sit with it for a number of months or years. By the time you um, make the statement to your family, they are hearing it in the moment and they are reacting and responding in the moment to something you have had years to prepare your, your mind, your heart and your life for. So you're going to get a varying degree of responses. So just be aware of that. Don't internalize any of the responses, though some might hurt in the moment, give it time, but don't let that hold you back from pursuing the thing that you think is important your important next step in this path. So, so for me, I didn't have the overhead, um, but I did have to take years to arrive um, and unlearn in my own head, the right and standard way of becoming a mother. So that was our first question. So thank you um, for that question. Okay. So Aisha, do you think there is a right age to become an SMC? That's a really good question. And approaching this non-traditional path, I'm not going to say that there's a right or wrong age to become an SMC. I think that maturity, you know, will depend on the person, but I absolutely think that you have to be ready for this path. There are a lot of um, uh, challenges in the path. You love your kids, but trying to figure out how to juggle the day-to-day life of an SMC requires knowing where to find resources, knowing how to build your village, having a lot of self-awareness because it's just you. And for some of us, too much of me can be too much for someone who is two or three or six. Um, So you have, there, there are uh, traits that I think you want to have in place. Um, I'm not going to say, you know, there's a dollar amount that you want to have or a particular level in your career. I say be strategic about how you're stacking your money because this path does require funds, whether it's for childcare, whether it's for building out a nursery, whether it's for moving. And I would say, take a look at your career. If you have time, I would actually map out different pathways in my career. So times when you can move, times when you need to sit still, maybe during pregnancy and post-pregnancy. So I would be intentional about the steps. So you can absolutely be um, in your mid-20s and, you know, finishing up school and deciding SNC is the path for me. And I say, you know, give yourself a couple of years to situate your life for that because you do have time. Um, I personally became an SNC. I started thinking when I was in my early 30s, and then I did not start trying until I was about 37. So between, I'd say probably 32 and 37, I did a lot of thinking, a lot of maneuvering, a lot of saving. I think at one point I was working three jobs. I had two adjunct professor jobs, and I was a full-time traveling instructor for a software company. Um, But I just kept stacking that money for a rainy day. So not only was I a rules girl, I was also a rainy day fun girl. Um, 
But, you know, so, so that's my response. I don't think that there's a right age. I think that there is a right mindset and a right um, kind of framing um, for becoming an SNC. How about you, Hera? Yeah, I would say, you know, age ain't nothing but a number, right? Like, I definitely think that, you know, you could, you could certainly come to this decision early in life or later in life. Right. Um, And I, and I agree with you, Aisha with, you know, I think it, instead of the age being the determining factor, I do think that there's a lot of thought that should go into like, am I settled? Because um, specifically career wise, you know, there's, there's definitely a hit you take, you know, I think a lot of companies don't want to, don't want to admit that they're like, Oh, we're great for parents. And we give you maternity leave and all these things. Right. But let's be real. Right. There's a hit that you take as a parent when you take the leave. Uh, and I think the the hit isn't even necessarily, you know, how your job reacts, but just personally how being a parent impacts you and how sometimes, you know, you can't necessarily run full speed in your career at that time in your life. So I would say for me, I I have two kids and each time I decided to, to get pregnant and have my girls, it was a, it, I also had to consider my career and how this was going to impact my career for at least a year. And, um, so, so yeah, it's, it's not necessarily age, but it's also like where you are. And I think also, you know, we have to be realistic about age when it comes to like our fertility, right? So if you are, let's say in your late twenties and your early thirties, and you're thinking about the right age, right? Uh, you know, you, you probably have time depending on what your fertility is. Right. Um, and I always encourage women at the beginning of this path to just get the data because you could decide that maybe now is not the greatest time, but then your biological clock is saying now needs to be the time. Right. So, um, you know, just really trying to balance like, okay, you know, do I have what I need and do I have the time that I really need? And there's some things that you can do if you don't have a ton of time. For example, let's say, you know, your fertility clock is clicking, you know, ticking a little faster, but you want to, you know, you want to get some things settled. Sometimes there's an option to freeze embryos and maybe that'll allow you to wait another couple of years, but that's definitely a discussion that you should be having with your doctor. So one last point to that, Hara, is that I can tell you the moment you get your fertility um, testing results back, that's pretty much when I'd say probably 65% of the women will come back and say, okay, I'm doing this now because now they have information and they're informed. Yeah, totally. Okay. Let's see. So Aisha, do you think the fertility industry, like insurance, clinics, physicians, is discriminatory towards single moms by choice? Yes. <laughs> I definitely think so. Um, In a word, so. yes. <laughs> 
Um, because if I think if you look at your policies, the policies are geared toward, um, you know, if you as a couple, so this is specific to the insurance, if you as a couple have been trying for six months after a certain age, and you're not getting pregnant, um, then you are now bequeath this bucket of benefits, right? Mm-hmm. Which is or, huge, right? You could get right. like all the fertility stuff covered by your insurance. Right. And then as an SMC, you could have been you could have been trying with, you know, a romantic partner. Mm-hmm. Right. And it it didn't work out, but that doesn't count. And so, you know, so then what are you doing? You're sitting there looking at this bucket of funds that you can't touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in particular, you know, as as a woman, you know, you could have legitimate, you know, internal um, issues with regards to conceiving. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I do believe that it it should it should not be like if you as a couple. Right. And you'll mm-hmm. find that language actually in some of the insurance um, um, policies and employee manuals. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a bit frustrating. Um, I will say with regards to um, clinics and physicians, I mean, I think, you know, they're trained and their bedside manner, you know, is what it is. Um, and it should be kind of like an uh, equal level of treatment. But I could tell you that um, in this day and age, they have to broaden what that bedside manner should entail and should be conducive to different family structures, right? So if I come in as an SMC, you know, and and I do know that and I don't have a partner and I have to attend each of my uh, doctor's visits, you know, in a good situation where you're getting good, happy news, that's great. But I think that you should make sure that you are, you're covering the whole patient if they come in and prepare them for bad news and not just prepare them for bad news, but prepare them to sit with an advocate, you know, with that news as well and make sure that you follow up because I did have a really devastating miscarriage where my fertility clinic really dropped the ball on following up and following through. And they knew I was an SMC. Um, And so I left that appointment at that time. And I followed up with the different things that I had to do physically for myself. But at some point, the nursing staff, the doctors stopped following up with me. So there was a lull where I had, you know, retained placenta and did not know that this was happening. And so, you know, at some point they stopped contacting me. And so that was a problem. It could have been a catastrophic Mm -hmm. problem, but I do think that um, in this age of different family structures, different um, ways that people are coming to conception and the amount of money that we're spending, I believe SNCs do require, you know, the best and and the same. And so they have to be prepared to kind of like fill in some of that gap that you might be without a partner. So you might need a bit of extra, you know, handholding. I think that's equitable. I think that um, the way I look at this, and and this is one of the reasons that I was motivated to do this podcast and, and also create the space. I think that we know based on how we've experienced judgments from the outside about our single momness that as a black single mother, we face, we face bias, that negative bias in society. And I think when you think of, you know, particularly on the clinic and the physician end clinics and physicians, um, you know, these are people and people carry the biases with them from life. And so I think that we understand as black SMCs that when we move in these spaces, 
there is there's a negative bias on black single motherhood, right? There's a, there's definitely a negative bias on single motherhood period, but black single mothers specifically, I think that there is an assumption oftentimes that we don't have financial security. You know, there's assumption that, that perhaps we are um, promiscuous, you know, other negative stereotypes. And I certainly remember feeling the judgments when I would go into my doctor's office and perhaps encounter a new doctor. And you don't always necessarily want to have to like explain to your doctor, you know, oh, this is my fertility story, right? Because it's not always necessarily relevant. But I just think that, yes, I think the fertility industry is definitely not kind to us. And we know as Black women, we also are sort of set up for higher mortality rates when it comes to having babies. We did an entire episode about, um, you know, Black black maternal health and and medicine and, and definitely got, went into more detail. But it's a topic I'm super passionate about. And I will definitely emphatically say we do get discrimination. And for the women out there who are planning for this path or in the middle of it, don't question those feelings. And, you know, if you, if you're feeling like something is wrong, then trust your gut and, you know, you can, you're, you're the customer, right. And if you're not liking how you're experiencing something from your doctor, you can fire them. Yes, you can. (laughs) I will tell you the, the person who helped me the most navigate the system through that devastating miscarriage was another um, reproductive endocrinologist that I turned to to get help um, because I needed um, a doctor with a different bedside manner. So I took all of my toys and I took my money and I took my finances and I went to another clinic who then did advocacy on my part to the other clinic. And so I say also, it is okay to kind of share with other physicians, the types of experiences that you're having, because they may be able to provide some additional insight and resources that you had not thought of um, before. All right, so Hera, I'm gonna ask you this this next question. How do you talk to your kids about being donor conceived? Um, so let's see, one of the best things or one of my favorite moments from our past season was when attorney Michelle from the adoption episode was telling us how she spoke to her son about his conception story. And she said that she basically was just saying early and often, right. He would be in the little changing table and she would talk to him about how she picked him up at the hospital and, you know, and all these things. And I said, I thought to myself, that's so wonderful because not only does he just always know that's also giving her time to practice, practice the story before the child is verbal. And so I I de- I definitely was not that on point and I feel like I'm I'm definitely getting better at it with round 2 but for my girls I just have always tried to affirm their story so you know we we definitely we talk about different types of families and I refer to the donor as the donor and I'll say things like oh you know you two have the same donor as you know, your sister, your sister from a, from a different mom. Right. And so we, 
we are connected with a lot of the donor families from the same donor who have different stories. A lot of, you know, a lot of them are lesbian couples. There are a few SMCs. Uh, and so talking to them about what that means is really important to me, but I definitely, you know, I think folks should take a tip from Michelle and um, early and often is definitely the key because our kids should just feel like it's normal. You know, what about you, Aisha? So um, similar to Michelle, um, I, I think I said earlier in the um, the podcast uh, in our series that I got started in the national SMC space. And in that space, it is the norm to say, tell them early, tell them often about their conception story. And I go a step further and that I look for intentional ways to introduce different family structures, to introduce our, um, our conception stories for my girls, because they do have two slightly different conception stories. Um, and I will say, tell them early, tell them often, because a lot of it is you getting used to what the story is, you becoming comfortable, you having navigated the space as an adult to know what types of questions the kids might get, having listening to what goes down on the playground because it goes down on the playground. Yes. I feel like we could have a whole nother episode about like playground politics. It's a hot mess. Um, but, but, you know, but preparing your kids to walk in their truth, to embrace their story. And so, because the teachers, once, once your kids enter the school system, it all breaks open. The t- it, it will come at them from different directions. Teachers will ask them and challenge them about their, um, their family structure and they then they will have to go into their conception story other children um, will challenge them they themselves will see other you know parents and family structures at pick up and drop off so your kids are going to have these questions I know some in the SNC space will say oh I want to find all the books that don't have a father in it or can you show me a cartoon that doesn't have mm-hmm. a father in it and I'm like let's mix it up I want my kids mm-hmm. to see all kinds of family structures and that includes families with with a mom and a dad, you know, mom and a mom, you know, or grandma is my mom or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. and so that's important. So I don't necessarily shy away from those books either or those TV shows, because they also add to my arsenal of how I'm going to equip my kid to tell the story and allows me to practice different ways, because before they can read any story you read, you can make those words be whatever you need them to be. At some point, they would be like, mommy, that's not what it says. But yeah. up until that point, you can practice mm-hmm. with talking about the different words, the names, the family structures. And so I do that all along the way. So we have had the conversation about you, you're, you have a donor, right? And so we are also entering into the space where I have to tell my daughter um, that she has an egg donor, my, my youngest. So how do I work that into our story? Like, what does it take to be a family, you know, and things like that. So I'm still in the learning process of how I'm going to tell my youngest daughter about being don you know, donor egg in a way that my oldest daughter is not going to blab Right. And so and Mm -hmm. so I have to balance that that telling of that truth 
Um, for now, we're a team of three and we're powerful and we love it. Um, but at some point, I'm going to have to tease out the the slight differences in their story and I'm con- I'm, I'm preparing. So in, in that case, I have not yet started verbalizing that. I'm still um, focusing on the donor conception um, because I do want to sit down and talk with my youngest specifically about, you know, the special bond that we have. Um, so I think tell them early, tell them often, don't necessarily shy away from books that have, you know, a, a father um, in the story, because hopefully you're modeling in your, your village, um, all different types of family structures. And mm-hmm. that's the way the world is. So a moment about playground politics. Uh, in, and this is similar. This is kind of like in the same, you know, in the same answer. But I think similar to what many of us black folks experience when we enter into white spaces, you know, in the sense of we have to sort of be prepared to, for white people to use us as their education experience. I have recently with the, you know, with, with my older daughter entering school, realized that she's probably going to be put in situations where she has to educate people or people are expecting her to educate them about her family structure. And so understanding that, trying to give her the vocabulary and the confidence to be able to do that and do it at whatever level of detail she's comfortable giving that person. For example, sometimes you don't have to go all into it, right? Like if someone asks you where you're from, you don't have to tell them about your ethnicity and like, you know, what, you know, percentage makeup you are of each thing. You could just say, you know, yeah, I'm black. Is that what you're asking? Right. And similar to our children's conception story, uh, you know, we want to empower them to be able to give as much or as little detail as they want. And and kind of fend those things off if they don't feel comfortable getting into it without making them feel like there's anything less about their story. Um, So I think that's definitely important. So we want to get to one more question before we go. And this is something that uh, we get asked a lot, particularly Aisha and I, because we have two kids. Let's talk about child spacing. Like what are some of the considerations when you're thinking about um, preparing for a second child, or, you know, perhaps you have two and you're preparing for three. I can't imagine it. Cause right now I'm like up to my eyeballs in two, but let's talk about how you decided to space your ch- children. Well, I will say we can decide and God will laugh. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> my intent was to have my children be two years apart. I thought that that would be the ideal spacing. I had scoped out childcare because finances was a deciding factor for me. Could I afford to end childcare? And I stocked my daycare center for the entire duration of trying for my second child to make sure that I could um, afford to end daycare because I was, I would have had a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, well, that plant, my, my journey to my second daughter was three years almost. And so, but here's what I did. Like I knew that my daycare center um, had one rate for a child based on their age, but they also had a a sibling discount and they had a discount if you paid for the full month. So I factored that into the financial plan. And so that told me at the very least I could afford two in daycare. And so then I proceeded. Um, And so 
I proceeded to try for my second when my um, eldest was one years old and it ended up shrinking out to three years. I had them and there's a five year age gap between my girls. Um, And so, I mean, whatever age gap you get is going to be ideal um, is what I hear. And mine ends up being um, pretty ideal because now I have a two-year-old and a a soon-to-be two-year-old and a soon-to-be seven-year-old. And so um, in terms of that spacing, I don't have to deal with potty training for the eldest. There's not a whole lot of overlap um, in their, where they are developmentally. Um, And so I can really focus on the needs of the little one at a point where the older one wants to be independent. And so for me, my five-year age spacing um, feels right, but I didn't just arrive at like five years. Um, It was something that I kind of went through uh, the process. How about you, Hera? So I happen to have a five-year age gap as well, which is really fascinating. Uh, And I, and I can't say I necessarily planned it. When I first had my daughter, I thought I, I felt like I was going to be one and done because I couldn't imagine like going from like, you know, woman and child defense to like zone defense. And so I just wasn't in the headspace for it. And I think like, as I got more comfortable being an SMC and then also, you know, my older one got a little bit older. Oh, and I should also say when I first had my younger or my oldest daughter, I wasn't in a financial position to have two. I was living in a pretty tiny apartment and I just, when I started crunching the numbers, like I wouldn't have been able to afford it. And so when I, when my older daughter was about three or four, I started considering it. And for me, it was really thinking about, okay, when my dot, when my older daughter no longer needs daycare, can I afford daycare for the younger one? Uh, and also the older, my older daughter got, she finally started asking for a sibling. And so I was getting kind of like the full court press with like, am I going to have a sibling like everybody else has? And not that that was necessarily the determining factor, but I think it helped me understand that she, the, I guess it helped me understand that maybe our family wasn't done. And, uh, I will say that initially when I realized there was going to be a five-year age gap, I worried that it was going to be too large and that maybe they wouldn't play together or they wouldn't be that close. But I will also say I'm 11 years older than my, my sister and we're like super close as adults. And as I speak, uh, the two of my girls are in the other room yelling and screaming and playing with each other. So the five-year age gap didn't turn out to be too bad (laughs) because they really enjoy each other. So, okay. So I would like to say, this is our, this is our season one wrap. It has been such a pleasure working with you, Aisha. It's been so much fun. And we hope to use our short break between season one and season two to come up with some bomb content for season two. And so if you are listening to this and you've listened to our previous episodes and you have like a burning question or a topic that you think that we really should go into more detail on, please feel free to reach out to us. And I also have an ask about Instagram. We are Mocha SMC on Instagram. So that's also an incredible way to reach us. You can message us on Instagram and also look at our lovely pictures there. Uh, And I'd also like to give one last plug, Aisha, you want to give the plug? 
Yes. So if you really enjoy our content, the best way that you can show your appreciation is to leave us a comment wherever you listen to your podcast. So leave us um, leave us a comment, leave us a review. We really want to knock season two out the park and we could really use your help. So and also um, I will tell you to Hera's point about Instagram, we we are developing uh, virtual events. We are developing YouTube content based on your feedback. So don't be shy. Let us hear what you like. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Pod. Well, Pod, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. If you like what you heard, share us with your girlfriends. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So tell us what you thought of this episode on social media. On Facebook, we are at Mocha SMC Podcast. And on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Mocha SMC. You can find additional information on the topics from the podcast at our website at mochasmc.com. Till next time, pod. Bye now.